This is football. I'm Kevin Clark. Ben Johnson staying as offensive coordinator in Detroit. Mitch Schwartz is going to join us in just a second. Spagnolo stories, Mahomes stories, awesome insight into one half of the teams playing in the Super Bowl. Really enjoyed that. But as of five minutes ago, we found out that Ben Johnson is returning. And what a shot. What a blow to the folks who are saying, oh, Dan Campbell is just going to end up being Mark Trestman as soon as Ben Johnson leaves. Well, guess what? First of all, Dan Campbell helped develop Ben Johnson. They've been working together since, I believe, Miami. And Ben Johnson buys into the Dan Campbell culture as much as anybody. When he was tight ends coach, I met with Johnson, and he said that Dan Campbell sets up a culture and atmosphere where he wants to come to work. And it's it's love, no fear, literally his words. And that Dan Campbell doesn't have to yell because his motivation, Ben Johnson's motivation, is to not disappoint Dan Campbell. This is like real. And so this is not Kyle Shanahan working for Dan Quinn. This is not, you know, Kevin Stefanski working for any of these numbers, like an offensive guru working under a, a, a head coach that maybe isn't connected to him. This is like a real working thing. That's why I wasn't surprised when he stayed last year. And that's why in retrospect, looking back on it in the in the four minutes since it was reported, I'm not surprised he's staying again. Now, there's a report from Adam Schefter that his asking price is high. Good. Like, it, it, don't, what's, what's the, so I, there was a report that he wanted, what, like $15 million a year from the Panthers or something. First of all, that's what you should be asking for the, for the, from the Panthers if you have options. Second of all, Seahawks and the Commanders, I think the Commanders is a pretty good job. But if you want to say you have to pay me to go, um, pay me more than anybody to go, like that's that's your prerogative. That's setting it up. This is, happens all the time. This happens all the time that uh, coaches or GMs say, I don't want this job, but I'll take it for this. I used to work with somebody in media who used to say, <laughs> it's a very funny piece of advice. I've tried it a few times. It's never really worked. It's like, if someone comes to you and says, we want you to have this job and you don't really want it. You counter offer the job you do want. And you say, you know what? Hey, I'll go to this random TV channel, but you have to give me $3 million a year. Because guess what? You would take that. That's a good job. You just created a good job. So if Ben Johnson is saying, I'll go to the commanders and 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 start this rebuild, um, but it's going to cost you $12 million. He just created a market for himself. It's fine. Happens. Happens. Happens all the time in GMing and coaching. Um, so if this becomes a story, just know that, like, do you think that the Cleveland Browns don't have to overpay? I'm not comparing to commanders. I'm just saying any job that's not currently coaching a great quarterback or a great roster, there's going to be demands there. The Cleveland Browns have to overpay everybody because they fired a bunch of people and nobody wants to take those jobs. The Panthers have to overpay everybody because of that. Um, a bunch of these places where people don't necessarily want to go, they have to give longer deals and they have to give more money. That's how this works. And so I'm not surprised that Ben Johnson's asking price is high for, for, for some of these jobs. Now, let's put this aside. Um, this changes so much about what we thought about the NFC North because I think every single NFC North team was coping saying they were to come back down to earth. I don't agree. This is, this is a run it back situation. Um, and if I'm a Lions fan, I'm celebrating. I mean, obviously it's a devastating week, but I'm celebrating this 
significantly. Um, so here's Mitch. We had uh, we recorded an interview with James Cook um, from the Bills. We will have that to you later this week. We had real technical issues um, with with part of the recording of the interview, which tends to happen sometimes when players are, are kind of on the go. Um, we'll clean that up for you. We'll have it on Thursday, probably an abbreviated version. Here's Mitch Schwartz. Here's Chiefs Talk. All right, Mitchell Schwartz is here. One of my one of my buddies, uh, an owner of a golf simulator, and somebody who played in the last time the Chiefs and the 49ers played in the Super Bowl. Uh, what's going on, buddy? Nothing much. I'm excited for this rematch. You definitely listed my accolades and my descriptors in order of importance, so thank you for that. <laughs> I can't swing a driver in my house, and every time I can swing like a eight iron comfortably and then every time i want to go to like a seven iron or god forbid a six iron i think i wish i lived in mitch's weird carved out room <laughs> where i can swing anything yeah it, um, just let me move in just let me move into that specific room i don't need kitchen access or anything like that oh we're, we're okay with that i mean i don't know how yeah. comfortable the the turf is down there but you'll have your own little putting green as well so you can lock in on the short Great, game as, along with the long game and uh we'll see you you know breaking 70 at pinehurst pretty soon that will not be happening. Hey, um, the Pioneers will be happening, but the 70 will not be happening. Um, all right, so let's let's talk about this rematch. And I'm going to start here. Someone who played in it, someone on the sidelines, someone who saw every single play and was game planning for it and all that stuff. Give me something about that matchup, the 2019 into 2020 matchup, that most people don't know. The, I think we were more confident about our offense against their defense than maybe the national perception, which is sounds like an obvious thing. But in terms of game planning, scouting, you know, they were an awesome defense, great defensive line. The back end was playing really well. But we felt like if we held up in pass protection up front, we could do some things on the back end. And that that was a, a secondary unit that obviously was playing great ball. But it's also easier to play great ball when you only have to cover for 2.5 seconds instead of 3.5 <laughs> seconds, especially against the guys that, that we had in the receiver room and the tight end room. And so we felt like offensively and offensive line-wise, the challenge and the onus was upon us to give Pat that little bit of extra protection that the 49ers D-line didn't allow other quarterbacks to have throughout the course of the year. And mm. you could look at the game and say that we didn't necessarily do the best job of that. We were down, you know, like 10 plus points or whatever it was in the fourth quarter with eight minutes left and uh you know Bosa was kind of wrecking shop and Buckner had a sack and, and their guys were doing some good work but we just kept kind of chipping away and we felt like internally we had confidence that if we could do our part up front we would be able to make hay in the back end where I think you know nationally the narrative was both the defensive line is great and also the secondary is like a lockdown shutdown secondary and uh they are for you know the first few seconds but no one can hold up uh <laughs> Then, then we ran Wasp. How about that, buddy? Ever heard of it? Hey, um, all right. So uh, I want to get into Mahomes a little bit later, but I want to start with Spags. Because Spags is getting, as as the media would say, his flowers this week. And I think that that's that should have always been the case when you consider what the defense looked like with Bob Sutton. And Bob Sutton's a great guy. Um, but Steve Spagnuolo was a hell of a defensive coordinator. And to me, the fact that he's not going to be another head coach because he did not do a very good job his first time. Um, he seems locked into the coordinator role. He seems to really enjoy it. It seems like, all things considered, it's one of the best coordinator hires since, like, the year 2000. Like, I don't know. I can't go through, like, D.C. hires in 1993 or whatever. Uh, Belichick with the Giants was a better coordinator, okay? Like, that's what's what's there. there. Um, but, like, it seems like if you're assigning credit, 
he might be fourth when you can you go read Mahomes, Reed, Kelsey, Spagnolo. Um, let's start here. The key to Steve Spagnolo is what? I think how smart he is and how well he knows his players. Um, because this, even his first couple of years, obviously we won the Super Bowl, but those defenses weren't quote unquote great defenses, especially not yeah. like this team. They were mediocre to bad defenses at the beginning of the year and they got better throughout the course of the season and i think that shows spags's smartness his adaptability his understanding of his players and the offense at the time was so good that it allowed him the ability to kind of work through the defense throughout the course of the season and now this year funny enough we've seen the opposite spags's defense is so good from the get-go that the (laughs) offense has had time to work through their issues and get to where they are now and so i think It would be easy for a coordinator to give up on what he's trying to do, what the end goal is, what the vision is of what he wants the defense to be in January. And that gets back to, you know, Spags' smartness that he understands, hey, it's okay to kind of go through these growing pains and I need to figure out and I need to push the limits of what my guys can handle, what they're capable of, what they can do physically and mentally on the field. And I'll be in a much better position in December and January when the games really matter to be able to turn those those dials and, and figure it out. And we've seen that historically. This Chiefs defense, no matter even this year, as good as they are throughout the course of the season, they turn it up and they play better during the playoffs because Spags has fully figured out what the guys are capable of. All these crazy blitzes, all these like cool little schemes where they're getting uh, open pressures and he's attacking the other team's pass protection rules. He's been able to do that throughout the course of the season and figure out which guys are better at blitzing. Maybe, you know, Sneed used to be the slot pressure guy. Now he's an outside guy and now McDuffie's a slot pressure mm-hmm. guy. And he's figured out, okay, well, he's really good at blitzing in this particular aspect. And you sign a guy in Justin Reed at safety and he can do some great things where even if Reed isn't the free runner, he's shown the ability to match yeah. up one-on-ones with one-on-one with running backs and be able to make win those matchups when he's blitzing. And so now there's another little wrinkle that Spags doesn't necessarily have to have the perfect blitz that gets a free runner. He can just blitz a guy and make sure that the running back is on Reed and he knows Justin Reed is going to beat that block. And so it's all these little things he's figuring out throughout the course of the year that he's comfortable enough as the coordinator to keep plugging away, to keep trusting and knowing that the product in January is going to be even better. So one thing I don't think we pay enough attention to is how the defense and the offense interact in practice because how your offense runs shades your defense. And if you're like, if you have a bad quarterback, the defense may never be tested. And I remember like a couple things that come to mind, like Jeff Fisher, used to say that he has to like basically remove Aaron Donald from practice when he was with the Rams, because when Fisher was with the Rams, because he would just wreck a play and the offense would have no chance. And it turns out that was uh, indicative of something larger, but um, still like Aaron Donald was a practice wrecker. He would ruin practices because he would be so good. And that would have been any place. And Tua told me that Nick Saban, uh, he wanted to see so much on defense that if the offense had a good day, he'd be pissed at the offense because he was just trying to work stuff out on defense. So there's a long way of asking you um, a defense that practices against Patrick Mahomes every day. Um, I assume that's an advantage, but Mahomes is one of one of one. Explain how defenses react to Mahomes because we hear all the home practice Mahomes stories, right? But I don't hear a lot of defensive Mahomes stories. Defenses getting better, how they adjust, do they get frustrated? Steve, does Steve Spagnuolo have an advantage going against Mahomes in in practice every day? So, from my perspective, the offensive line perspective, I always felt like the yes. defense. So from my perspective, the offense line perspective, I always felt like the defense was one day ahead in offensive installs or in installs during training camp because we would go in and we would install, you know, simple stuff, power and inside zone and two jet and 
you know, empty protection, like really basic stuff on the first day. Actually, yeah. the West Coast guys install 24 protection, which for football nerds is a quarterback under center and two backs in the backfield. And it's a true seven man protection that nobody runs anymore. But all the West Coast guys, <laughs> that was the first day of install that Bill Walsh used to do. And so they still install 24 protection because all their other protections come off of 24, 72 and 70, 71 and 74. So yeah, they like to do that. So we're installing our base protections and Spags can install any blitz he wants. And we don't necessarily know the blitz package. You know, over time, you kind of learn what Spags likes to install and what his his base pressures are. But the first time you face it, like they had this really cool blitz from base. Uh, I think they ran it against Denver early in the year to get a sack. But it's a great base pressure. The, you know, buck linebacker comes down, the three tech spikes inside. Buck linebacker basically takes the tackle and the mic scrapes over the top. And unless you're locked in on that pressure and you can see it coming, it's really difficult to pick up. It's, you know, three guys crossing throughout the middle. And if we don't know as an offense that we're picking it up that day in practice, it makes it really tough to pick up. And so they yeah. run these pressures. We react to them as much as we can during the practice, but then we watch film of them. We game plan them to a degree that you're game planning against your own defense in camp. But we know like, hey, if they run this pressure against these new plays we're putting in, we've got to pick it up. And then Spags installs eight new blitzes the next day. And we don't necessarily <laughs> know what those blitzes are. Yeah. So I always felt like we were behind today. And so oh. maybe for other teams, the defense has a little bit of an advantage and they're able to run some pressures yeah. that quarterbacks haven't seen. But because they're facing Mahomes and because of his processing power and now in whatever the fifth year together, he's seen all the SPAC stuff. And even if he hasn't, he's so good as a quarterback that he doesn't necessarily allow the defense to get those free runners or to be able to run the blitzes that they want, because that makes it easy for the defense. If they're ahead of you game plan wise, and they're getting free runners because the offense basically hasn't game plan against those blitzes. Is that really helping them to get a free runner and just uh, plays over, you know, we got them on this one. It doesn't, but they're able to match up against an equal who's, who's mentally on the same level that uh, Spags is in terms of what he can bring. And so you're getting good on good, fair on fair. And it's also a great practice for them that if they go into a game with this designer blitz package and maybe gets picked up the first or second time, how are we going to disguise yeah. it better so that Pat can't figure out that this is what we're doing? Because when you go up against these great teams that have game planned to you, they know hey, this corner might be a half guy inside versus a half guy outside. And that's the indicator for the entire blitz. If he's got inside leverage, he's going to play it a certain way. It's a man pressure versus zone pressure. And this is going to happen. That's going to happen. Okay, this guy's going to blitz. And so you're going up against a guy in Pat that can recognize those things and he makes them uh, pay for any sort of tip that they give away. That's awesome. Um, I need to ask you about what I'll consider big game Mahomes because he doesn't, to me, I've spent less than 30 minutes with him in my entire life, so it's not like I'm, I'm a, I'm a homesologist here. Uh, not Adam Teicher over there um, where I get to see him every day. But to me, he seems very grounded and um, I'm not going to say casual, but he just seems very calm at all times. And, you know, you'll ask, he's not going to be Kevin Garnett where he's going to start yelling at people, but also like be like, all that matters to me is winning. He's just kind of like, yeah, just, is good like you know like he just every time you ask him anything he answers the question which is great the number one requirement of, uh, of an interview subject and he just kind of rolls with the punches on everything and that's that's just my my read on it is he's never like gonna overstate something or make things more dramatic and so over the past couple weeks i've seen him go into buffalo and be fueled by nobody said i could win a 
road playoff game, that, that kind of thing. You know, nobody believed in me. <laughs> nobody believed in the defending Super Bowl champions. And then you see, uh, obviously, against Lamar, everybody's talking about Lamar. I picked the, the Ravens very close, and part of that was the Joe Tooney thing. And so I, I, I'll put the question to you. Behind closed doors, Patrick Mahomes in a big game does what? Like, what do I not see about big game Patrick Mahomes in the locker room, in the huddle? Um, what is that experience? So I think the biggest misconception, because everything you said from the outside view is correct, and we associate hyper-competitive athletes with a certain level of or this guy's a yes. or he talks incessantly and won't shut up. And Pat is able to blend <laughs> that like Jordan, Kobe, Brady level of competitive with cool with you know joe montana cool (laughs) and you know that's something that's rare because from like you said from the outside view it doesn't seem like he's a guy that would take on all these things internalize them and use them as fuel it just seems like he's great he's got this process that works for him but he's cool as a cucumber and every single game he's going to treat the same but like you said as we've seen he is a guy that likes to see things that are out there and take from it what he will. And it's not like he needs to see that to succeed. The guy's uh, in his, you know, fourth Super Bowl in five years, and he's been to six yeah. conference champions championships in six years. And so they hadn't been, you know, we were always at home. We were always favored. So he hasn't had to use the we're the underdogs thing in the past. Most of the time, teams aren't talking the way, not the Baltimore talked a ton of smack, but they talked enough that Kansas City was able to internalize that as, you know, we need to shut them up. But that, has, that hasn't always been the case. You know, the last time we played San Francisco, both sides very complimentary the entire time, which is what you're supposed to do. Because if you're facing a guy like Patrick Mahomes, who is a fire-breathing dragon and also will see any little thing and use it as fuel, yeah. you don't want to give him anything. And so that's the thing, you know, from the inside that even I didn't understand the first few years playing with him. Because he doesn't necessarily show that. Like throughout the course of the week, like, you know, hey, we got to give it to him. You know, they're saying this. And that's normal stuff. You just, they're they're saying certain things. You know, we got to make sure that we prove to them that we're who we are. And, you know, we're going to try to hang 50 on them. That's normal stuff. That's not like, hey, I need to, you know, destroy Chicago so I can throw up fingers to make them remember that they took Trubisky over me. Like, I was shocked when that happened. I didn't know that that happened. I saw it on Twitter after the game. I didn't know that he had that in him, that he used as fuel and that he wanted to show people, anyone who had doubted him, that like, I am, you know, the guy that I am and and I'm this good. So it's been really cool to see. And, you know, I think now that he's had as much success as he had, he's a little bit more free in, in the public as well to kind of show snippets of what that competitive fire looks like from the inside. And it's just, uh, it, it's been fun to see. And it's cool that, now this kind of newer narrative is starting to build on him to show, you know, just how truly competitive he is. Do you remember a thing that he was motivated by that surprised you? Whether he brought it up to you or not, it's okay. It's okay if you don't have an example. No, that's what I'm saying. I, there, yeah. You don't even like notice it in the fact because everything yeah. he, is it's so all, It's all, it's all, it's, yeah, it's all him and Bobby and somebody else. <laughs> like they're just all, the, the motivation machine is all behind the scenes. Yeah. And it's, it's cool because again, like he doesn't, need to be brooding every day like oh they're saying this about me they're saying that like he can still go through his process he can be the awesome guy that's in the locker room that's playing with you know the starting receivers when they're shooting hoops or whatever and he's can also play with you know the practice squad guy that you signed a week ago he's cool to everybody he's totally normal he's not Barry Bonds with four lockers and a personalized lazy boy and you know sitting with his back to the team like 
he's that guy, but he's also internalized all these things, and he's the face of the the league. I guess you can maybe say Travis is at this point, but one of the faces of the of, of the league and the team and you would just never know that day to day looking at him yeah. that he's internalizing uh all these things and what he's getting his motivation from because he's so consistent one more on this uh, before we get to the the matchup in in what 12 days 13 days um which is that i, I think the miracle of patrick mahomes is how often he makes extraordinary things look extremely normal best case ex- best example is coming back from double digits which like franchises don't do for decades and Mahomes does it regularly I think Mahomes has like more a winning record being down 10 than, points or something yeah yeah he, <laughs> but like everybody else is like like 1 and 98 all time in like the fourth quarter coming from double digits Mahomes like all right here we go again did it the last three weeks might as well do it now um explain to me the process and the demeanor is there anything and I remember this surprised me at the Patriots where like 28 to three happens. And I remember everybody was like, what did they say at halftime? What did they say in the third quarter? And like, they didn't say anything. Like there wasn't, it wasn't like varsity blues. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't one, one half of our rest of our lives, whatever. It was just like, Hey, let's just keep, we're the Patriots. We're just going to keep doing what we do. Um, the demeanor in those situations, clutch Patrick Mahomes. Does he change? No, he doesn't change. It's a, a, pure and true trust in himself and the guys around him that I know I'm good enough to win this game and to come back and to make this happen. And I know that the team that we have is good enough to make that happen. And so, yeah, he might go up and down the sidelines like, hey, guys, you know, you know, keep believing, whatever. Just kind of normal stuff that the guys do throughout the course of a game when you're down. But it's not the backup running back giving, you know, speeches that are trying to be motivational. Like it's <laughs> the quarterback, the best guy on the planet potentially the best guy that's ever done this going up and on the sidelines like hey guys keep believing keep trusting we're gonna get this the next time and you wouldn't necessarily again know what the score was you wouldn't know the frustration level you wouldn't know all these things it's just almost like you just know it's gonna happen you believe it's gonna happen there's no wishing it to happen there's no oh man like we're down a couple scores you know this is gonna be tough I hope we can do it (laughs) there's none of that it's it's a pure belief and you know, the first yeah. kind of big comeback was the Houston game in the yeah. technically 2020 playoffs, 2019 season. We were down, I think, 24 points. If you go back and look at that, we had like a drop pass, a drop pass, and some other weird thing. Maybe I think it was a muffed punt that they recovered. Mm-hmm. You know, three pretty normal things that if you just kind of do the thing you're supposed to do, it probably would have been like 24-24 at that point or whatever yeah. the score would have been. And so on the sidelines, it's not like, we got to keep doing this. We got to do that. It's just like... Hey guys, just do your thing. Like we're getting open, we're getting the ball where it needs to be. Like let's just be ourselves. We were the best offense in in the league this year. Uh, let's just get back to being what we are. And that's the thing. You just do it, and it just happens. And then yeah. we score seven touchdowns and seven possessions, and you know, put up like forty nine straight points, whatever it was. And it just happens. And so then the next game, you're down double digits, and the same thing happens. And the next game in the Super Bowl, you're down double digits, and he throws an interception with like ten minutes left in the game, and you're down ten points. There's nothing you need to say to him at that point. The coach doesn't need to go up to him like, hey, man, keep trying. It's like, it's Patrick Mahomes. Of course I'm going to keep trying. Of course we're going to keep doing this. And so at that point, that's an easy situation where you could sit on the bench. You could look up at the scoreboard. You could see, oh, man, there's eight minutes left. San Francisco's offense, which is like the greatest ball control offense uh, that we've seen in the last you know five or ten years, has the ball. They've been having some success against our defense. Our run defense isn't the strength of our team. They're just going to, you know, whittle the, the game away and they're going to kick a field goal with four minutes left and we're going to have to go, you know, 
come back from 13 points with four minutes left. But that's not the case. You just know, like, hey, we're going to get the ball back, and we're going to go score. And that's what we have to do, and it's going to happen. And that's the confidence and belief that happens. And it's just, uh, obviously, at this point, he's got a lot of, uh, you know, pelts on the wall where you have that belief. But even at the time when it wasn't necessarily known on the larger scale, I think he has that belief in himself and his demeanor kind of, you know, spreads throughout the course of the team where it doesn't have to be leading vocally. It's also all the nonverbal cues. It's it's the body language. It's the way you hold yourself that if you see the quarterback and he's still got his chest puffed out and he still has that fire in his eye, that spreads throughout the course of the team. I think that's maybe what um, some leaders or people who are in leadership roles that don't know that they are don't understand is that if people look up to you, they take on so much of the nonverbal of what you're giving out. And the nonverbal from him is always so, you know, confident and ready to go. By the way, if you want a lazy boy and four lockers, they can make that happen. Like Barry Bonds, Veach and Reed and okay, so they can give them the extra locker and the lazy boy. They could. I haven't been in the home locker room in a little bit of time. But historically, Kansas City is actually not a team that even has backs to the chairs. It's a stool operation. No, they don't. Yeah. So they have like middle lockers, which is rare now. Like it's a pretty. uh, Well, that's more of a training camp. uh, Um, Okay. But I was there in the playoffs a couple of years ago. I feel like there's middle lockers. It's okay. So that's, yeah. I mean, it's not just purely like a box or a rectangle. There are a couple arms that come out from either side. But yeah, going from a stool situation to a lazy boy would be like a massive leap. So like maybe yeah. he, after his third Super Bowl, he can get a chair with a back. And then after a his fourth Super chair. Bowl, yeah, he can get a padded chair. one. And then after his fifth Super Bowl, it won't be adjustable. And then after his sixth Super Bowl, yeah. he can actually get the lazy boy. Well, it may be a footstool as well. We'll work <laughs> on that. More with Mitch after this. Why should you bet with Caesar Sportsbook? Two words, Caesar's Rewards. Every bet brings you closer to the types of benefits only Caesar's can offer. Hotel stays, VIP experiences, sports and concert tickets, and more. It's not just an app, it's an empire. 21 and up must be physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming, or Washington, D.C. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, Utah, and other states where prohibited. Know when to stop before you start. Gambling problem? Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, Ohio, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, affiliated with Harris, Philadelphia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, Crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537. Or Maryland, visit mdgamblinghelp.org. Or West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. Colorado, D.C., Nevada, Wyoming, Kansas, affiliated with Kansas Crossing Casino, call 1-800-522-4700. Indiana, Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Iowa, call 1-800-BETS-OFF. Louisiana, call 1-877-770-STOP. Licensed through Horseshoe, Bossier City, and Harris, New Orleans. Massachusetts, if you or a loved one is experiencing problems with gambling, please call 1-800-327-5050 or visit gamblinghelplinema.org for 24-7 support. Michigan, call 1-800-270-7117. New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. This matchup, we'll start with the 
Spagnolo defense against this offense. Is there something that that we need if we're just sitting home and being football dumbasses? We need to watch as the key. Um, and we say if Spagnolo does this, then this offense is it, the the Purdy offense, the Shanahan offense is no longer as effective. I think it's the control of first and second downs to force San Francisco into the third downs that you know historically we've said they're not as good on or or, or they're not uh, quite so uh, advantageous for for San Francisco. And again, that's something that you can look at all the metrics and the advanced data and you could say that, you know, run defense is the least important of run defense, pass defense, rush offense, pass offense. That's probably the least of the four. But if your rush defense isn't good enough to keep a team out of third and two to, you know, they have second and four, they're able to convert. You're not able to get into those third and long situations, then it is a big issue. And so again, Sam Fran, because they like to stay ahead of the sticks, because their offense is so explosive and they gain so many yards per play and they're always attacking at every level what you do on first and second down sets the table for what you're able to do on third down which is where spags really shines and so being able to handle the run game on the early downs being able to handle the play action game being able to handle you know the screens how they're gonna use you know Debo and McCaffrey and are they gonna switch them and in what spots and you know, if Debo's in the backfield and it's man coverage, you know, does Snead be, come into the box because he's got to spy him or does this happen? Does that happen? And so what you're able to do on those early downs dictates whether you can get to the Spags designer stuff that he's really um, known for. And it's those first and second down pressures. Are they going to bring corner pressure? Are they going to bring a perfectly mm-hmm. timed safety blitz off the edge when San Fran is trying to pitch the ball? Are they going to, you know, bring the backside safety when San Fran is trying to run a reverse or trying to run a counter play? And those little game within the game moments of having a feel for, even if you don't know the specific play of what the other guy is going to run, just having a feel for how that guy likes to call the game, the flow of the game. What's he going to be thinking in the situation, you know, on second and eight after a two yard run? Does he like to get up to the line and run? a play action that looks like something that happened five plays ago and he's going to counter that and now do something different and having your guys prepared for those, you know, kind of critical downs throughout the course of a drive that can really dictate the outcome of the drive because that second and eight stop that becomes third and seven is a whole different ball game against a team like San Francisco mm-hmm. than giving up five yards and now it's third and three and they still can keep the pressure on. So I think that's the biggest thing for me is seeing what this team can do first and second down and, how much that relies on what Spags is showing them structure-wise and also who he's blitzing and, and at what particular time. Um, all right, so let's get to a pick before we get to one rep back. Do you have a pick for the game? I mean, I feel like Stephen A. Smith talking about the Kwame Brown trade. Days. Is that a serious question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Kansas City. I mean, I was actually more dubious than maybe a lot of other Kansas City fans because I took the macro view of after the Raiders game this team was not good enough in my eyes to win three straight playoff games against other good to great teams and two of them be on the road now they've changed and this is a much better team since that Raiders game I think they've I don't want to say simplified things but I think they've gone back to basics like you and I golf guys your game is going to hell you internalize, all right, let me just get back get back to that one swing feel and let me get back to that one little technique thing. And I think that's this whole team had to take a step back, stop trying so hard, and just get back to what am I supposed to do on this play? 
and just try to execute it as easily as possible. And they did. And I think this team has changed who they are. The offensive line is playing way better than they were, much more physical. This whole team has always relied on the offensive line and how good we play up front dictates how good Pat and the receivers can be on the back end. So the O-line's playing better. And because of that, everyone's playing better. Receivers are playing better, catching balls, being in the right spots. And so the team changed who they were from five weeks ago after the Raiders Mm -hmm. game. And so you look at each individual matchup and – I thought they were going to beat Miami. I thought they were going to beat Buffalo. I thought Baltimore was going to be really difficult because who Kansas City had been the course of the season was a team that makes mistakes and a team that wasn't good enough to overcome those mistakes against the better teams that they played. But I didn't take into account that this is a different team than what that team was throughout the course of the season. And I think it's you know fully seen now that this is a different team. And so we saw it come down from two and a half to one pretty quickly because I think people are uh, believing that this is a new and different Kansas City team. And also the 49ers have shown that maybe they are a little bit of a different team from who they were in the regular season and maybe not mm-hmm. as good as they were. Because if you're giving up, you know, 21 or 17 point leads to Detroit and you're getting down to Green Bay and Green Bay is controlling the flow of the game and uh, they're controlling both sides of the line of scrimmage. What's Kansas City going to do looking like they have the past three weeks if the offensive line keeps playing the way they are? The 49ers D-line, I would say, is not playing up to the level we expect of of how good they've been historically. And again, the D-line runs that defense. And so if Kansas City comes mm-hmm. in, the O-line keeps playing the way they are, controlling the defensive line in a way that uh, obviously the Lions have a fantastic O-line and Green Bay's got one too. Mm-hmm. That's the key. And so I, I do think this game looks favorably for Kansas City, where if you had said even two weeks ago, it's going to be Kansas City and San Fran in the Super Bowl, I think you would have expected maybe two different teams to be coming into the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. You would have expected San Fran to have waltzed through the NFC, which I think most people did. And you would have expected Kansas City to kind of like, and eh, they eked by Mahomes made some incredible plays and they barely got by the Ravens. But it's been the opposite. Kansas City has kind of dominated things on their side and San Fran has been the one to eke through. And so, yeah, I think this is two different teams from where we thought they were just a month ago. And, you know, for that reason, plus obviously my bias, I'm going to go with Kansas City. We have a segment now that we didn't have last time you were on here called One Rep Back. And it's you can replay, get back any play of your career, full health, prime of your athletic career. You get to redo it and say, damn it, I get, I want one more shot at this. What play are you picking, Mitch Schwartz? So I was lucky enough to like not have a play that lost a big game or a play that, you know, I drew a lot of attention for, you know, one specific thing and a really tough defeat. So I would actually go back and redo the first play of my career because the first play of my career, it was 96 wide, a single back uh, outside zone handoff to my side on the weak side. And we were going against Philadelphia against coach Reed. We had actually played them in week three of the preseason. And then we played them week one of the regular season, which is a really odd scheduling thing. And I was going against Jason Babin, who's a pretty good defensive end. And I'm thinking like, all right, I got to scream off the ball. You know, it's coming right behind me. First career NFL play. And I get way overextended. He either spins inside or just kind of clubs me by and tackles Trent Richardson for like a three yard loss. I was like, Okay. This is a great way to start your <laughs> NFL career. You know, I was not, I mean, in that draft class, we had Brandon Whedon and Trent Richardson, and I was at the top of the second round, but like way kind of behind in terms of what the fans were wanting to see. But 
it was just a, a really kind of disappointing way to start my career. And it's a play that I've always kind of looked back on and laughed at. Obviously, it's funny that it started that way and that uh, I got destroyed the way that I did on the first play. But when I think about that question, you know, I didn't have a holding call in a playoff game that was yeah. the difference between winning and losing. I didn't have a play, God forbid, that my quarterback got hurt on because I gave up a strip sack and his arm got hit. Like I didn't have those kind of disastrous plays that you would think back to. Um, but that first play always kind of sticks out as uh, how cool it would have been if I just like grabbed him and just dumped him and got a pancake <laughs> my first play and got up and celebrated. Like uh, that would have been a pretty cool way to start your, your NFL career. Instead, you just ruined Trent Richardson's career. Yes, I single-handedly did that. I I actually fueled Trent Richardson for his great highlight, which was running over the, the Eagles' safety and popping his helmet 20 feet into the air. Maybe I was the reason Trent got so mad that he destroyed the Eagles' safety and got his you know highlight. So um, on the other side, you could actually credit me for getting Trent angry and leading to that awesome highlight. And that highlight led to Ryan Grigson trading a first round pick. So you you derived value from uh, for the Cleveland Browns on that first game. Yeah, I was I was Sashi being Moneyball before Sashi was Moneyball. I was the one who understood that we needed to get extra picks and we needed to do everything we can to get as many first round picks as possible. I I wasn't the one choosing the guys, but uh, you know that's a different discussion. Mitch Schwartz, uh, thank you so much, man. Uh, are you going to come to Vegas? As of now, I'm not slated to, um, but, you know, things pop up and maybe business in. opportunities your, your, pop up. See your buddies. See your buddies. All right. Talk to you soon, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.